Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 129. My kingdom is not of this world. And the following episode is in fact another sermon that I preached the week after I preached the episode that showed up for last week. So the episode Every Institution Falls, which was episode 128 on this podcast, this sermon was preached on November 21st of this year, just one week later. In our lectionary readings, had Jesus standing before Pilate, um, acknowledging on Christ the King Sunday that his kingdom is not of this world. And having been in the church myself for many years and having now served in churches on staff for close to 15 years, I've discovered that lots of Christians have very differing ideas of what they think Jesus meant when he said the words, my kingdom is not of this world. And it's become more and more apparent to me that because many Christians define Jesus's idea differently, it leads them to have differing interpretations of what our role as Christians should be in the public sphere, in the realm that you and I can see in front of us each and every day. And what relationship does the kingdom of God really have with things like political realities or social realities? And so what I found was with the help of Lee Camp's book, Scandalous Witness, plus several things that I have been chewing on for months and months, even years now, trying to articulate just how it is that Christians relate to the social sphere and the political sphere, I wanted to take a stab at addressing what I do not think Jesus means by his phrase, my kingdom is not of this world, then to lay out what I actually think it means as is fairly consistent with the way the New Testament is written and then to challenge Christians to adopt Jesus's way of thinking about these realities and to recognize that the church is the political entity that Jesus is most concerned with transforming. And while we tend to draw our attention to our own national scene, we need to remember that the national scenes in which we all live are most mostly defined rather as kingdoms of this world and operate according to certain principles. And yet Jesus is calling us quite literally to live an otherworldly kingdom. And so this is something that I wanted to share with you on the podcast as an additional sermon. I know I did one of these last week, but this is a teaching as well, especially for the people in our church. And I thought that you would benefit from seeing how if we take Jesus's concepts, particularly as it relates to every institution will fall, and then being able to separate the way it is that we live and serve and love the world and the country in which we live, but we don't mistake it for being something that Jesus has come to establish. And so what I attempt to do in this sermon is make sure that in order to keep those two things distinct, we don't make the opposite error of then assuming that what Jesus means is my kingdom is not of this world, is that it is something that only pertains to the afterlife. And so I will address several in the sermon. I do reference the fact that I put these words up on a screen in our church in bold letters, um, yellow letters in particular, so that they stand out. So don't be confused when you hear me reference that in the sermon itself. That's all I'm doing. I'm giving our people both a visual and an audible way of interpreting what I'm saying. So I offer to you the sermon that I preached just a couple of weeks ago, my kingdom 
is not of this world. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is the gospel of the Lord. Jesus, would you take your words from John 18 and speak them into our hearts this morning? We love you and want to hear from you. Amen. You may be seated. I've titled my message this morning, Super Creatively, um, right out of what Jesus himself says to Pilate, not once, but twice in this particular conversation. My kingdom is not of this world. If you were to ask me, is there any one particular theme which ties together the Bible the best from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the answer I would give you is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, defined the way I typically define it, is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. And in fact, if we had the time, and we may do this sometime in the future at this church, but is to walk through Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22 so that we can look at how understanding the kingdom of God and what it actually is and what it actually means helps us make the most sense of what God has been doing since the very beginning and where, in fact, history is headed. Since we're not going to take all that time today, I want to focus just in on what Jesus says. Jesus is talking about a kingdom, and it's confusing to Pilate, who is the current governor of Judea, appointed there by Caesar, who quite frankly has a kingdom of his own. So don't misunderstand that when Jesus uses words like kingdom, and when Pilate then naturally assumes that if Jesus is bringing a kingdom, then maybe Jesus is going to be the king of said kingdom, there's an inevitable conflict about to happen. In fact, that conflict is happening right now because the Jews don't like the version of the king that Jesus actually is, and therefore they've brought him to Pilate in the first place because the Jews know they're powerless to do anything like put someone to death, but the Romans, on the other hand, have no problem with that at all. So if we can get Jesus in trouble with the Romans, he'll do our dirty work for us. That is what is happening and yet when Jesus uses the phrase, my kingdom is not of this world, I have been in the church long enough to know that that phrase is interpreted in a lot of different ways. 
The question is, what is Jesus's relationship to the kingdom he's come to bring and the reality in which you and I live? I think the best way for me to explain this is to simply start with what I do not believe Jesus means when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And then to do what all teachers try to do is once you know what it doesn't mean, then we try to tell you what it does mean and everybody walks away happy. Fair enough? My kingdom is not of this world. I am not sure the way you naturally interpret this, but let me give you what I have heard Christians think that this means. So I've I've done it for you this way with my yellow highlights. It's easiest enough to see. This does not mean that Jesus's kingdom has to do only with the afterlife. This one is probably the most common. Jesus is telling Pilate, I've not come to set up this worldly kingdom. We're talking about heaven and where Pilate needs to go. He needs to repent and trust in Jesus so he can go to heaven when he dies. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God more than any other topic in the gospels. And he says repeatedly, the kingdom of God is at hand. So the kingdom of God has to have something to do with the present not just the afterlife. This does also not mean that Jesus' kingdom is limited to the spiritual realm. This one is very comfortable for many people. We imagine that it's invisible. It's just the spiritual things that are the really important things. The physical things don't matter as much. I don't believe that's a faithful interpretation of what Jesus is talking about for the very simple fact that Jesus spent an exorbitant amount of his time touching people physically healing them in their actual bodies. What we do with our bodies, since our bodies will be raised in the end, actually matters. So we don't want to reduce it just to the spiritual realm. This also does not mean that Jesus's kingdom only pertains to matters of the heart. That is something private and hidden away. Does Jesus deal with matters of the heart? Yes, he does. Do you know why? Because the heart is where behaviors come from. So if Jesus is interested in ridding the world of murder, he needs to start in the heart that gets unjustifiably angry at another person and who wishes them dead already in their own heart. So yes, it begins in the heart, but it never stops there. Sadly, I wonder if some Christians don't imagine that it starts and stops in the heart and then what goes on in our outside world isn't really as much of an issue. The final thing that I do not think it means is that Jesus's kingdom is a private affair unrelated to politics or social matters. This one hits people particularly hard. We think it is private, it is personal. What takes place on a bigger scene, well, that's for the nation state or governments to deal with or nations or what have you. I find there's a lot of confusion around this. I personally have not always thought the way that I'm thinking right now, but I think this is helpful for you because I would, I would argue that most people sitting in churches today think one of these four, if not all four of these things regarding what the kingdom is not of this world actually means. Now that I've stripped all of these things, right, of what it doesn't mean, let me tell you what Jesus is actually getting at and then I'll see if I can help you understand why it matters. What it means when Jesus says my kingdom is not of this world is that his kingdom does not have an earthly origin. You know in the temptation when Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of this world, if he will just bow down and worship him, Jesus has not come to bring in a kingdom that happens the way all other earthly kingdoms happen. 
One group overthrows another, the group that's stronger takes over, they become the ones in power. That's the way earthly kingdoms happen. That is not the way it happens with Jesus. His kingdom also does not follow earthly agendas. Those who are the strongest win. Those who are the fastest win. Those who are the richest win. Those are earthly agendas. Those who control things win. Those who lord their authority over other people are the ones who get to make the decisions, the ones who get to enforce the rules. That's the way earthly kingdoms work. Those agendas have no place in the kingdom of God. He's also telling us that his kingdom does not come through earthly means. Power, victory, wealth, might, strength, you name it. It doesn't happen this way and also that his kingdom is not threatened by earthly opposition. You cannot steal the kingdom. You cannot threaten the kingdom. And anyone who is in the kingdom can never have that status revoked by them or by anyone else. This, I think, is important for us because we don't even have to leave John chapter 18 before we see someone attempting to use earthly means and use earthly agendas and who actually is afraid of earthly opposition rise up in an attempt to defend of all people and of all righteous causes, Jesus himself. In fact, it's earlier on in John 18 where Jesus is being arrested by the Roman authorities and Peter the lead disciple, the one who loves Jesus dearly, who could not find a more righteous and just cause to fight for according to earthly means, grabs a sword, and my perception is, Peter being a fisherman, doesn't know how to swing a sword, so he's attempting to cut off the guard's ear, or his head rather, and misses and only gets his ear. Now that's completely conjecture, I have no idea, but nonetheless, Jesus rebukes him. Why? Because my kingdom is not of this world. It's not defended based on earthly means. It's not promoted or advanced based on earthly means. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with the way this advances. Now, the reason why I bring this up to you this morning is because if we don't get this distinction correct, uh, let me just, so if we don't, if we don't realize that it doesn't just mean this, and notice I only said only matters or only pertains to the afterlife or is limited to the spiritual realm. It includes these things, very much so. But it doesn't only include these things. We have to remember that it is talking about the way earthly kingdoms work themselves out. Now, we live in a world filled with earthly kingdoms. So it is unavoidable that we will bump up against earthly origins, earthly agendas, earthly means, and earthly opposition. But it's very important to realize that none of those oppositions or agendas or means are actually the kingdom of God fighting against earthly powers. They are just two different earthly powers fighting one another. Jesus spends the bulk of his time with his disciples stripping them from these kinds of things so that they are free to live life as his kingdom citizens. But if we don't get this distinction correct, then our understanding of the way Jesus works in the world will be misguided. We naturally, I think, I mean, this is my opinion, but I really think this is true. Many of us naturally understand that politics 
and social structures actually do exist in the world. So what's our relationship to them? If we conclude that Christianity is private and doesn't have anything to say to those political realities, then we mistakenly conclude those kinds of things aren't dealt with in the Christian faith. Then we will give that role to the nation state. We'll just give it to them. That's yours to deal with. The government deals with the political matters. That's not the church. The church deals with religious things and private things and matters of the heart. I disagree. I think Jesus disagrees too. But track with me here. I'm not going to begin to teach you a partisan political agenda because I also think that misses the boat. Because we know that those things exist, but we still like to be politically and socially relevant I mean, don't we all like to be relevant? I like to think I'm relevant. I mean, I'm, I'm getting older. I, I say that to a congregation filled with most people in this room are older than me, right? But I'm getting older. And as I get older, I'm like, I'm out of touch. I feel irrelevant a lot of the time. Um, anyways, for what that's worth, right? But because we want to be politically or socially relevant, we then just make the only conclusion we think we have. And that is to get on the correct side of the political partisan agenda. And this is where many Christians spend much of their time and energy. But I want to point out that all political partisan agendas are grasping for power. They want to be the ones making and enforcing the rules. And so you see, it doesn't matter which political partisan agenda you choose, they both are grasping for power They both want to be in control and they both want to force their agenda onto the rest of the country. But this is not the way of the kingdom. It never has been and it never will be. Remember when Peter, again, sought to force his agenda on the Romans by way of defending Jesus himself, he was rebuked. And I'm afraid that over the years, And over the generations and over the centuries, many Christians have given Jesus plenty to rebuke us for as well. A reading from Revelation 1, if you have your little handout, it's on there. Jessica read it for you. Identifies the Trinity in a beautiful way. It's one of my favorite ways that the New Testament talks about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit talks about the Father as the one who is and who was and who is to come. He talks about the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits who are before his throne. And then he addresses the church and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the ruler of kings on earth. It's, a mad, it's awesome. But Jesus actually says to Pilate, that my kingdom is not of this world. For this purpose I was born, for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. I think Jesus' kingdom not being of this world is one of the major truths that he is bearing witness to. And he is calling his followers to bear witness to that truth as well which is precisely why I think we need to talk about this. Revelation as a book, I know, freaks a lot of people out. That's unfortunate. 
Because Revelation is the most beautiful book in the New Testament written to address Christians and the way that we are called to live as kingdom of God citizens right in the middle of the kingdom of Rome. They are two very different kingdoms, one that is eternal and will outlast them all, and another who thinks it's eternal but is corrupt from the very core. Everywhere that Christians live, we are confronted with these realities. How do we live as faithful citizens in the middle of kingdoms? And this word politics gets us in trouble a lot, which is why I like to use the word partisan when I'm talking about them. The most helpful thing I have ever come across is from a book. I'm just going to quote from it because he says it so much better than I can. It's a book by Lee Camp called Scandalous Witness, a little political manifesto for Christians. And by little, it actually is. It's about 130 pages. You probably can read it in several hours, listen to it on Audible for a couple of hours. It's not that big of a thing. But here is what Lee Camp says in his book, and I think he is exactly right. Christianity is not a religion. It is a politic. Tragically few people, including the majority of Christians, whether liberal or conservative, recognize Christianity as a politic. I am not suggesting the more palatable notion merely that Christianity has political implications. I am suggesting that it is itself a politic. Now we need to define some terms. Thank you, Lee Camp, for doing just that. By politic... I mean an all-encompassing manner of communal life that grapples with all the questions the classical art of politics has always asked. How do we live together? How do we deal with offenses? How do we deal with money? How do we deal with enemies and violence? How do we arrange marriage and families and social structures? How is authority mediated, employed, and ordered? How do we rightfully order our passions and our appetites? Where is human history headed? What does it mean to be human? What does it look like to live in a rightly ordered human community that engenders flourishing, justice, and the peace of God? Now, I'm not sure how many of those things you picked up on. I know that was a long list. But I've highlighted them in my own notes, and I can actually think of several verses in the Gospels where Jesus addresses all of those topics. How do we deal with money? How do we deal with offenses? How do we deal with enemies and violence? Turn the other cheek. Don't store up treasures on earth, store up treasures in heaven. He's always talking about these issues, which means what? A politic just means city life, gathering people in community and ordering their lives together. What is the church? The church is a unit of political reality. It is a unit of communal life, which because of its commitment to Jesus as the king, has agreed to learn to put these practices into action in our own sphere. We naturally imagine, because we are earthly kingdom people by nature, that the best way to make this work is to get it done on the big scale. And Jesus is like, why are you doing that? My kingdom is like a mustard seed. It comes in super small. Un, 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 you know, un, just nobody even knows it's there and all of a sudden it's this huge tree that all the birds of the air can come and make nests in its branches. So understand, we can have healthy discussion in the church. I tend to vote this way. I tend to like this policy. I tend to like that policy. I just believe the church will be strengthened 
when we understand that that discussion is two different ways of believing it is best to run a kingdom of this world. That's all it is. Political partisan discussions is us deciding it's the best way to run a kingdom of the world. It's not the best way to run the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God doesn't advance that way. Here's a question. Can the kingdom of God prevent me from being loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, or self-control? Can a law ever prohibit me from doing that? No. If I find people on the other side of the political partisan divide than me and I see them as my enemy, what am I called to do by Jesus himself? Love them. Pray for them. Even, not just if they make your life harder, but if they even find themselves persecuting you. You see, when we get right down to it, Jesus' kingdom is something, yeah, quite otherworldly. It doesn't seem to fit. But I'll tell you what human nature does. We try to make it fit. We want it to fit so much with things that we know and understand and can relate to that Jesus has to continually come in and strip us from the kinds of things that will eventually go down with the ship. And he doesn't want us to do that. And so in a really convicting statement, Lee Camp goes on. Insufficient data, therefore, may be found among Christians to confirm that Christianity is true. And consequently, we Christians may be among the primary players responsible for the rapid rejection of Christian faith in the West. Not the secularists, not the liberals, not the conservatives, not the Americans, not the communists. And then quoting from 1 Peter 4, judgment must begin with the household of God. That's why I talk to us openly and bluntly about these topics. Because to be a member of the household of God means that God comes to his people first, to correct us first, to discipline us first, not because he hates us, but because he loves us and to continually strip his disciples away from earthly loyalties or earthly agendas or earthly means of accomplishing his work. Why? Because his work doesn't come through those means. It comes through a self-sacrificial suffering savior on a cross, marred and scarred for all the world to see, believed to be nothing but a common criminal. And through that, comes the blessing of the entire world. That's a story that we can get caught up in for our own salvation, but that is also a story we are invited to participate in as we seek and pray for God's kingdom to continually come, as we will pray in the Lord's Prayer in several moments from now. This is the challenge. My kingdom is not from this world, and what a blessing that is, because our world seems to be getting more and more divided. It seems to be going in a direction that none of us are all that excited about. So to know that Jesus is still at work and Jesus does some of his best work in some of the most volatile situations on the planet gives me hope and gives me confidence that we can remember we are pursuing something that cannot be stopped by earthly means because it's not promoted that way. But it makes me step back and have to question, where am I putting my hope? Where am I putting my energy? What keeps me up at night? Making sure that those things aren't really part of the kingdom Jesus has come to bring because he's not given us reason to be afraid. 
He's not giving us reason to lose hope. He's given us all the confidence in the world to believe that if death itself could not stop the kingdom, but rather brought the kingdom, then what else can stop it? Nothing. He will continue to pour out blessing. He will continue to build up his people. He will continue to challenge the church. He will continue to show us around every corner and around every turn that there is life to be found when we follow him wherever it goes. It's a hard message to hear, but it's one that actually takes us into eternal life. Jesus, thank you for your words this morning. Thank you for the privileges we have to be able to gather around your word indoors and hear from you and worship you and follow you. Jesus, I don't know where everyone is in this room, but I do know that you have a deep, deep love for your church. You want your bride to be pure and unstained by the world, to be holy and without blemish. And you are committed to our purity. And I know it's hard for us to hear times that we don't even realize we're getting dirty or heading in paths where we're, we're going to become that way, but we thank you that you're relentless in your pursuit of us, that nothing can stop your kingdom from spreading. Thank you for the privilege of being brought and invited into your kingdom and to be given your spirit so that we might truly see you work in the world. Give us each a heart and a love for this community for us to ask those questions about politics, about what it means to love those in our own community with whom we disagree, learning to forgive. As we think about money within our church budget, may the kingdom of God drive us. May fears be laid at your cross and not, not picked back up again. Would you show us life? Would you show us freedom? Would you give us a deep love and a, a binding here, a, a bond here that cannot be broken by anything. Strengthen us, we pray. We love you. And it's in your name we pray.